Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 is our text for this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. The title of this morning's message is The Danger of Hypocritical Worship. The Danger of Hypocritical Worship. We have here, here in, uh, here in uh, Mark ch- chapter 11, excuse me, Mark chapter 11, are the events that took place on Passion Sunday and then Monday of the last week of the Lord's earthly life. Let me read Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city." May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. As I said, these are the events that took place on Passion Sunday and then Monday of the last week of the Lord's earthly life. Mark has been rushing to get us to this point, if you remember, by using words like immediately and the word and throughout to keep the the narrative moving toward Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem and to His triumphal entry and obviously later on, to his suffering and death. He's going to die for sins on the cross. And so on Palm Sunday, the Lord Jesus finally arrives to Jerusalem and in a very anticlimactic way, as we saw, he enters the city seated on a donkey. The king of the universe entered the city on an animal no bigger than a pony. Hardly an entrance befitting a great earthly king, right? But that's precisely the point. He wasn't just another king, an earthly king. He wasn't just another earthly monarch. In fact, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 4 says that this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Those are references to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, and Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And Matthew wants us to know that this was in fulfillment. Even Jesus' manner of entrance into Jerusalem was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and in fulfillment of the great faithfulness of God concerning His King that would arrive and come in this, enter Jerusalem in this manner. And so it was after this initial entrance into Jerusalem that the first place that Jesus wants to see is the temple. If you look in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, it says that Jesus entered Jerusalem and notice he came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. This is very significant. Because Jesus then goes to Bethany that Sunday night after examining the temple closely. And undoubtedly, his mind and his heart are full with the images and the activity that he has just witnessed 
in the great temple in Jerusalem. We know from Luke chapter 19, verse 41, that earlier that Sunday, Jesus had mourned for the city of Jerusalem. That He had wept for the city as He approached it. As He pondered the lost condition of the people, it grieved the Lord. And on Sunday night then, He lays down His head on His pillow and He rests. Then the next day, on Monday morning, He heads back to Jerusalem. And on the way, if you remember, He curses a fig tree in verses 12-14. through 14, And far from some, some ambiguous uh, act that Jesus did in cursing this fig tree, that was a symbolic act of condemnation, of judgment upon Israel for her fruitless and superficial spirituality. Like that fig tree, the nation of Israel had become um, fruitless, ineffective. It had failed to produce what God had called her to produce. Now, as we zero in on our text then, verses 15 through 19, it's after that cursing of the fig tree that our, that our Lord Jesus still on Monday returns once again to Jerusalem. And where do you suppose that he goes first? Into the temple. He goes to the temple. And it's here in the temple that he has strong words and strong actions for those who are comfortable with hypocritical worship. Those who are comfortable living characteristically in a state of hypocrisy as, as it pertains to our devotion before the Lord. And here in our text, we witness our Lord's passion for true worship and for unhypocritical worshipers. I want you to see this. We see this passion of our Lord for true worship and unhypocritical worshipers, first of all, through His zealous actions in verses 15 through 16. Through His zealous actions. Look at verse 15. The text says that they came to Jerusalem and He entered the temple. Now you need to understand some important things about this temple. This is the infamous Herod the Great's temple, if you will. Herod the Great's temple. The same Herod who slaughtered all of the babies when Jesus was born. That particular Herod died in 4 B.C. But it was Herod the Great in 20 B.C., 16 years before he died, that began renovating the ancient temple that was rebuilt during the first return of the Jews from exile recorded in Ezra chapter 2 that you'll get to in your Bible reading. Now, even though Herod the Great had died by the time the temple had been under construction for some six decades or so, here's this temple that Jesus is now entering here. And when this same temple was later destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans, some say this temple was never truly fully completed even then. But this temple was something else. And we need to think about the background a little bit of this temple so that our text even makes more sense. The temple was massive in size. It was some 33 or 34 acres in size. It was large. It was surrounded by high walls on all sides, made from the finest material. It was divided into various courts. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. No Gentile could go further beyond that particular court. Then as you got closer to Herod's temple, the next court was the, was the court of women. No women were allowed beyond this particular point. Then even closer to Herod's temple was the court of the Israelites. 
Only Jewish men who were ceremonially clean, who were consecrated for the sacrifice, could enter there. And finally, you had the court of the priests. This was the innermost court where the priests were. This court led directly into the very heart of the temple where sacrifices were being offered in accordance with the law of Moses. That was the court of the priests, the innermost court. And so this temple was massive, consisting of all of those various courts. It was also majestic in appearance. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, this temple was filled with with gorgeous, cream-colored, precious, marbled walls. The stones were every, everywhere were of the, of the highest quality, of the best material. Money was no object. The material came from the most prestigious places of the world, of the Roman Empire at the time. The temple was decked out with gleaming gold in various places around the temple. I mean, it was an amazing structure. It was quite the trophy for Herod the Great and for the Herodian family. Herod at the time had prided himself in being a master builder and architect. In fact, he had embarked on this project of rebuilding this temple, renovating it so that he might perpetuate his name and and the name of his family through his great acts of architecture. And so he began renovating this temple so that it would be one of the great wonders of the known world, at least at the time. It was quite the scene, quite the structure. So this temple was massive it was majestic. Finally, it should go without saying that the temple was, was monumental for the Jewish people. I mean, to the Jews, the temple was what Buckingham Palace is in England. It was what St. Peter's Basilica is to Rome. It's, if you will, what the White House is to Washington, D.C. Even greater than this, more important than these places. The temple was the central place of worship. It had always been since the Old Testament times when Solomon built that first temple. And before that, the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt among his holy set-apart people. The temple was where God met with his people. It was the temple of the living God, the God of Israel, the one and only true God. And sadly, by now it had become anything but a center for true worship. And so this is where Jesus finds himself now. Now, as mentioned, the outer court was the court of the Gentiles, of the non-Jews. And they could not go beyond this point. And the reason why the court of the Gentiles, this outer court, is important for us to consider and zero in on is because this is the court, the court of the Gentiles, is where Jesus specifically cleans house right now. The court of the Gentiles. It was about three football fields long or so, about 250 yards wide. It was no small court. And as our precious Lord, think about this, imagine this. As he enters this vast place, what does he see? Instead of entering a temple for worship, what he sees is a marketplace for corrupt business, for exploitation. And as he sees this, our, Lord's, our Lord is sick to his stomach. He is provoked within himself. Similar to the Apostle Paul in Acts seventeen sixteen, where it says that upon seeing the idols of worship in Athens, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. So Jesus is sick to his stomach. His spirit is provoked within him. And notice his zealous actions here. 
as he sees this activity of, of the temple. Verse 15 says that he, that he drove out those who were buying and selling. This is forceful, aggressive action that our Lord took in its purest form because he's blameless and perfect. Have you ever done this? Have you ever taken it upon yourself to force, forcefully drive somebody physically out of a place or a location? Do you remember a couple of years ago when we had started the Gospel of Mark? We were inside of the sanctuary and we started off. One of the key passages early on in Mark was Jesus casting out the demons out of a demon-possessed man. And all of a sudden, as I was preaching, this gentleman up in the balcony begins to hurl out just abuse and, and just bad words. And just he's out of control with violent behavior. And all of a sudden, our security team went over, and they were trying to talk sense into him, but it got even worse and worse and worse to the point where our security team had to physically drive this man out of the building. It's quite aggressive, quite violent. Well, that's the idea, but in pure, in its purest form with Jesus, the sinless one driving these individuals out of the temple who are buying and selling. And you can imagine this. By the time the place was packed with visiting pilgrims from all over the world, it's the beginning of the day. And these visitors, what would happen is these pilgrims who had come in to sacrifice for the Passover feast would do one of two things. They would either travel with their animals the whole way into the city of Jerusalem for these feasts, or if they didn't want to be inconvenienced, Uh, with their animals traveling these long distances, what they would do is that they would buy these animals in the temple in Jerusalem. This would also eliminate the risk that upon arrival to Jerusalem from foreign lands, that their animals would not pass inspection. There were particular requirements prescribed by the law of Moses for these animals who were to be sacrificed. And so what these pilgrims would do is purchase these animals in the temple. So that they could pass the priest's inspection, if you will. It was sort of like a smog check for your car, right? But instead it was a smog check for your animal sacrifice. So they would just purchase these in the temple. So you can imagine how much profit this brought to those who were selling animals in the temple. It was pretty good for business. Supply and demand, baby. The more people that wanted these things, the more that they would hike up the prices in the temple. Josephus estimates that over 2.7 million people or so were present in Jerusalem during the Passover feasts. And that about a quarter of a million animals, approximates, maybe even higher than that, were sacrificed during these feasts. So imagine the revenue. Imagine the profit that these individuals would make. And so Jesus takes forceful action against them out of his zeal for his father's glory. Notice in verse 16, it also says that he was overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, we're told that that every Jewish male, 20 years old and up, was required once a year at the feasts, to contribute a half shekel toward the cost of temple upkeep. It was sort of like a yearly membership fee that you would have to pay. And so in paying this fee, however, you could not utilize coins with an idolatrous image on them. And so what did you have to do? 
You would have to purchase acceptable coins, exchange these with these money changers with acceptable coins that could be paid for that. uh, You could cover that membership fee with. But what these twisted money changers would do is that they would charge you a processing fee, if you will, of at least 10 to 12 percent for their services. And so they would make a profit off of you. And notice in verse 15, to make matters worse, they were overcharging even for doves. Doves were the poor man's sacrifice, according to Leviticus chapter 14 and verse 22. If you couldn't afford the bigger animals, you would purchase these doves. What exploitation of people? What exploitation of people? It also says in verse 16, if you notice, that he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. The sense here is is that, that the Lord camped out for a time to enforce this. He was not allowing anyone to carry utensils or containers for transporting things through the temple. Normally, this transporting of things back and forth wasn't even allowed in the temple. But it's quite possible that the religious leaders who were overseeing all of this were allowing it for business. The point being that the temple had become mundane. The temple had become common ground rather than a consecrated, sacred place. There's a lesson for us here, isn't there? What a reminder for us who, yes, we don't worship out of a physical temple. The the physical uh, building behind me here is not the church. The people of God are the church. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we now, believers, Christians, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, personally and collectively as a corporate gathering. So we might not worship God uh, or the building might not be the equal to the temple of New Testament times. But, beloved, may we never, ever, ever get to the point where our corporate gathering as a church becomes mundane. That it becomes commonplace for us. Rather than a sacred gathering. Rather than a, a time when we are just in, in awe and wonder of what God has done in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? May we always be in awe and wonder. And we must pray that God would help us to cultivate that sense of wonder and amazement so that we would have hearts of devotion when we come together. But you understand what this temple had become at the time was anything but that. It had become a a robber's den rather than a place of worship. It had become a bona fide circus rather than a temple for worship. And keep in mind, That all of this is taking place under the oversight of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leadership of the Jewish people. Those who were supposed to protect worship. Those who were supposed to preserve the purity of worship to Yahweh. Had failed to do that by example, first and foremost. What a mess. What a distortion. What a perversion of true worship. And because our Lord is so concerned for the glory and the holiness of His Father, He is disgusted. He is sick to His stomach as He sees all of this transpiring in the temple of worship. And so He takes aggressive, zealous action. So much so for gentle, meek, and mild Jesus, right? People have an incomplete view of Christ He is gentle, meek, and mild. Amen? But He's also holy and just and pure and zealous for His Father's glory. 
You must have a full picture of, of Christ. Psalm 60 and verse 9 says that zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Ultimately, that was fulfilled in its purest form in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was zealous for his father's glory. And beloved, if we're going to be Christ-like, then those things that offend Christ should offend us. Amen? You see, there is, there is a time to be filled with righteous indignation. There is a time to be angry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, To be angry and yet do not sin. And on the latter, isn't it true that most of the time we are sinfully angry? Maybe we get sinfully angry because we get selfish. Maybe we didn't get our way. We didn't get what we want. Our circumstances aren't, are, are not what we want them to be. We take something personal that somebody else does to us, etc., etc. And so we get sinfully angry. And so sinful anger is certainly something we need to repent of and confess before the Lord. And we are all guilty of that. But there is a time to be angry. When the glory of God is at stake. When God's word is being undermined, twisted or disobeyed. When weak or helpless people are being treated unjustly against what the word of God says. When the name of Christ is being shamed. When genuine worship is being corrupted as here and not taken seriously. And not treated as sacred and consecrated to God. We should be filled with righteous indignation. And in those times, like Christ, we should be filled with righteous, holy anger, shouldn't we? In fact, it, could, it would be sin. It could be sin not to be angry in those moments. It might say something about where you are at spiritually. That instead of being indifferent to people's rebellion, I think the Lord wants us to be people who are filled with a sense of His holiness and His awesomeness and His majesty so that we would be driven to actually fight for what the truth says. And so there is a place... Beloved, to be filled with righteous indignation, let us not be hypocritical. You know, I would hope that right now, for example, as Christians, that you and I would be equally concerned and filled with righteous indignation and righteous anger with the rioting of the hateful, hostile people who are basically tearing up places, including Capitol Hill. I'm not talking about the peaceful protesters. I'm talking about people who are damaging other people's lives and damaging people's property. I would hope that we would be just as concerned and just as as filled with righteous indignation for that as we were last year when there were rioters and violent aggressors taking matters into their own hands, not peaceful protesters. Amen? Let us not be hypocritical. Let us not pick and choose which evil, which is evil and which isn't. It's all evil before Almighty God. So how about you? How about you this morning? Do you shun sinful anger while 
at the same time seeking by the grace of God to cultivate a zealous concern for the glory of God. For His holiness, for His majesty. For genuine, authentic worship, personally and corporately. We should pray for that. We should pray for that. You know, I've read some of your wonderful comments already in your daily Bible reading on the Psalms. Some of you who are logging in some of those. And I know others of you who aren't logging them in. It's okay. But I appreciate those. I've been reading some of those, especially as you've been walking through the Psalms in your daily Bible reading. And I'm sure you've already noted how often the psalmists are moved with righteous indignation for people's outright sin and rebellion against God. And they call down God's justice upon people. All the while, as we read more and more psalms, they are constantly asking God, Lord, search me. Search me to see if there's any sinful way in me, any twisted way. Guard my heart from sinful anger, from a sinful desire for justice for selfish reasons. But... They do pray for God's justice. They do pray for God's judgment upon people who are in rebellion against Him. And so our Lord was driven to zealous action because of the corruption that He saw. Listen to D. Edmund Hebert. If on the preceding day Jesus had entered as the King of Israel, on this day He entered as God's High Priest, pronouncing His judgment upon the perversion of worship in the temple. And so here we see the Lord's passion for true worship through his zealous actions. Secondly, we see his passion for true worship and for unhypocritical worshipers through his truthful words. Through his truthful words. Look at verse 17. It says that he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written? Is it not written? Gegreptai. This verb here is in the, in the perfect tense. The perfect tense points to a completed action in the past with continuing results into the present. You can translate this, it stands written. Boy, I love how Jesus always gets back to the word, doesn't he? Always getting people back to the word. He wants them to put their activity in the temple through the grid of scripture. We must do the same thing, beloved. Everything that is taking place in our society today, we must do the same thing. What's written in God's Word? What has God said in His Word? Because that is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. Amen? The Lord does this again and again and again. Is it not written, notice, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Those are words from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah there who some six to seven hundred years before wrote to warn Jerusalem and specifically the southern kingdom of God's coming judgment for their rebellion and false worship. And so Jesus is saying, got to get back to the word. What does my what was my father's original intention? My father's original intention was that this would be a place of worship. What have you made it? You made it a robber's den, a place for exploitation of people rather than for worshiping the one true God unhypocritically. And I want you to notice how in verse 17, he indicates a further reason why he responds as he does. Obviously, the first reason is because of their hypocritical worship 
But closely connected to this is a second reason for his strong reaction. And it is this, that this is the court of the Gentiles for the nations to come in. This is the only place where the Gentiles, the nations could come in, in the temple to pray to Yahweh, to worship Yahweh, to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And so in turning this court into a circus Vargas, Israel, beginning with her leaders, had shut the door on the nations coming before the one true God. Think about that. God's chosen ethnic nation had ceased to be a light to the Gentile nations, which is always what God had intended for his chosen ethnic nation, Israel. In the Old Testament, God told Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, who was renamed Israel, I will make you a great nation. A great nation will come through you and through you, Israel, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, now, post Christ, post the Messiah, having come and died on the cross for sins, we know how he is blessing the nations, people from every tongue, nation and tribe, right? Through faith in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Commenting on this, Brooks, Thomas Brooks writes this, quote, Now with the conversion of the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace, with all the noise and commotion and stench, the Gentiles were now deprived of the only place in the temple where they could worship, end quote. How sad. How sad. And so through his truthful words, the Lord Jesus reminds Israel of God's intent, what God's intent had always been. That the temple was God's house. A place for heartfelt worship for His people. A place for the nations to come and worship the one true God and not all the heathenistic idols and gods with a little g. And it had ceased to be that. Beloved, I believe there's application for us here as well. We're not the nation Israel. But the hypocrisy, the spiritual superficiality, the spiritual decadence of the nation is a lesson for us as well, isn't it? That we, who've been called to be salt and light, don't cease to be that in this wicked and perverse generation because of our Christless behavior and hypocritical worship. That we would not cease to be a light that points to our great and glorious God. That we would not lose our effectiveness or our influence as God's people saved by the grace of Christ. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, that if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? In other words, if Christians who are a, a preserving influence in this world lose that preserving influence because of our Christlessness and our lack of true worship, then we might as well go home now. We've lost a sense of our mission. Can I make a pinpointed application for us right now? If you and I are responding to the current crises in our country, just like the world, be it on social media or with one another in the way that you articulate what's coming from your heart and abusive, sinful, hateful words, then you have lost your sense of purpose in this world. You forfeited your witness. You've lost your influence as a Christ follower on mission for the gospel. 
And of course, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything going on, that we don't have opinions, but the way that we do it and the venues that we choose to do it through need to be dictated by the gospel of Christ. We need to be careful. You want to talk about evangelism? You want to talk about how we might be a powerful witness in a lost and dying world? Beloved, the world needs to see a people so captivated by the glory of God, so captivated by what He has done in and through the person and the work of Jesus in saving us, being our sin bearer and taking upon Himself the fullness of the Father's wrath for our sin. A people so captivated by the love and the kindness and the goodness of God that we are people who worship God in spirit and truth. That is the most powerful testimony that we can have before a lost world right now. The most powerful testimony. Worshippers in spirit and in truth. So that people would say, Campus, what is it that what is it about? I mean, things are so bad. Circumstances are so bad in our country. Why is it that you have the joy of the Lord? Why is it that you talk about blessings? Why is it that you talk about these things? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about Christ. That's the most powerful evangelistic witness that we can have, beloved. We need to be people who worship from the heart and in truth. From the heart, sincerely, honestly, from within, captivated by the glories of God and the glories of Christ and the gospel. And then in truth, in a manner consistent with God as He is revealed and defined in His Word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the only self-revelation of God right here, God's Word. In truth, we need to be captivated by the work of God, beloved. Not like the so-called pastor. Did you hear his prayer this last week? So-called pastor who In his prayer in the new Congress, he opened up with a prayer. Did you hear the closing of his prayer? May the Lord make his face to shine on us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace. So far, so good, right? All right. But then he says, peace on our families, peace on this land. And dare I ask, O Lord, peace even in this chamber now and evermore. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma. Brahma is the creator God of Hinduism. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names and many different faiths. And then it gets really interesting. Ready for this? Amen and ah woman or a woman. What in the world? You know, God didn't hear that prayer. He didn't. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. What's his name? The man, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. One God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And you want to pray to this one true God, you pray through Jesus Christ, not through anybody else. God didn't hear that prayer. Nothing virtuous about it. Nothing hyper-spiritual. Okay, everybody wants to to be filled with goosebumps there in our our government officials. Oh, what a great prayer. Thank you for the... There's no unity. Unity only exists in love and truth working together. That was a false prayer to a false God. But it was 
And so those who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth in a manner consistent with who God is in accordance with His Word. And our hearts should be grieved. And yes, filled with righteous indignation, God help us, when we hear such things like that. Our Lord was, His heart aches here. He's cried for the city of Jerusalem for these people precisely because they've lost a sense of their awe for God and a sense of their mission to reach the Gentiles. So we've seen our Lord's passion for true worship and unhypocritical worshipers through His zealous actions, His truthful words, thirdly, through His calculated strategy, through His calculated strategy in verses 18 and 19. You would think that after Jesus' words and his actions, things would really escalate. I mean, we even see in verse 18, if you notice, that the chief priests and the scribes heard this, heard his teaching, and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Having heard Jesus' teaching, his actions, his growing influence with the crowds, The religious leaders are now fearful of Christ. But there's a type of fear that doesn't lead to reverence and love and devotion and trust and faith, right? This is a a fear that they have here that leads to hatred and hostility against Christ. They want to destroy him. And so everything here is in place for a premature escalation of events. But notice in verse 19, it tells us very simply... When evening came, they, Jesus and his disciples, would go out of the city. I love this. Our Lord is not retreating here. Our Lord is not running away from these individuals here. There is a divine, calculated strategy already in place for procuring true worshipers and unhypocritical worshipers. There's a divine timetable, and it's not the time yet for things to escalate. But soon they will. The Lord retreats, knowing that later this week, what is He going to do? He's going to die for sins on the cross of Calvary. Jesus will be the great sin bearer who will take upon Himself the fullness of God's punishment for our sins. He's going to pay for sins on the cross that by faith there may be a people set apart, consecrated, who worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? That's where He's headed. There's a strategy here. A divine timetable. And in fact... In John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50, a passage which falls right after this temple cleansing, Jesus begins to speak of his death and his resurrection in the context of exposing hypocritical worship. Why does he do this? Because Jesus' strategy is to die for sinners that by faith we might be true worshipers, right? Genuine, authentic worshipers of the one true God through Jesus Christ. And so it's Monday night. And Jesus returns to Bethany once again. But beloved, what a lesson for us. What a lesson for us. Jesus is passionate about true worship and unhypocritical worshipers for true worshipers. And how easy, isn't it, to go through the motions, to be disengaged 
in our hearts. To go to sing songs in a heartless kind of way. I wonder how many of us actually pull up the songs that our song worship leader Ian Martin sends out ahead of time as we head into Sunday morning. How many of you knew that Ian does that? Yeah, many of you do. You know why he does that? He sends those lyrics to those songs so that we might prepare our hearts for worship. Maybe pull up those songs. Begin to sing them yourself. Sing them with your family in your home. Think about the words so that you pour into Sunday morning and our engines are already going, baby. And it's just like just an opportunity to corporately now exalt Christ, which we've been doing all week long. That's why he does that. But it's so easy to become heartless in our personal and corporate times of worship and devotion. But worship is to be heartfelt. It's to be genuine. It's to be engaged. It's to be sincere. You know what else, too, about us, especially us Christians in America? We tend to compartmentalize life, don't we? Here is my, my secular life over here on the left side with my, my job and my neighbors and out in my community and maybe my home life. It's all my secular life. And here is my church life over here. Reading the Bible, talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, corporate worship on Sunday morning. We tend to compartmentalize life that way. But worship is a way of life, and it's all of life, isn't it? It's all of life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that we have been the, the recipients of God's tender pities, tender mercies, the glories of the gospel summed up in the person and the work of Jesus. We've been the recipients of this gospel so that we might present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice to him, which is our spiritual service of, say it with me, worship. All of life is worship. So we worship in, in secret, in our closets before the Lord when we're do, practicing daily Bible intake and we're getting to know our great God and His attributes and the glories of the gospel and who we are in, in private before the Lord. We worship God in private in our Bible reading and in our prayer times. But we also worship God in the privacy of our home life with our families. And the way that we spiritually lead men, our families. You worship God in the way that you disciple and love and serve your wife. Wife, you worship God in the way that you love and support and serve your husband. That's worship too. We worship God, parents, in the way that we love and disciple and train up our children. Our home life is worship. We dare not compartmentalize life. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, personally and corporately. So we worship God when we gather corporately as a collective group, and we worship God when we scatter into our homes, our jobs, and every other aspect of life. Single people, young single or older single, you worship God in your singleness. How? By practicing contentment that can only come by being happy and content in Christ rather than in some future spouse. I can promise you that if you're not content in Christ now and are characterized by that, even though you might have your weak moments here and there, if you're not content in Christ, no spouse will meet your every need. That's an accident waiting to happen right there. So you worship God in your singleness 
by your devotion, by using your time that you God has graciously given you as a single person, young or older, single, right now to serve in the church because you have the time to do it more than a typical married person. Both are graces, singleness and being married, aren't they? We worship God in our workplace. And we work as unto the Lord. And when we strive to excel at what we do for the glory of God, when we don't cut corners in our workplace, when we maximize the hours that we're being paid to excel and bring glory to God as our bosses see, wow, they work really hard and I don't always treat them very well. Why do they do that? They want to glorify Christ. We worship God when we come prepared for corporate worship on Sunday mornings, don't we? When we come with an attitude of worship, Sunday morning begins when? Saturday night. Sunday morning worship begins Saturday night. You worship God when you come with an attitude of worship, with your bodies rested, your minds and your hearts prepared and eager to worship the Lord by singing songs from a heartfelt attitude of gratitude and love and devotion to the Lord. We worship God when we come for corporate worship on Sunday mornings or throughout the week when we have a heart to serve others. When we are ready and eager to see how we can be an encouragement to other people. When we are eager to practice the one another's and the, and the power of the Spirit and by the grace that God supplies. We worship God, beloved, when you are focused on meeting others' needs, according to Philippians 2, 1-4, rather than always being concerned with what you get from other people. That's how you can worship God. Where you become a giver rather than a getter all the time. We worship God when we practice forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships with one another. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5.23? If you come before the Lord, bringing your offering to the Lord, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what are you to do? Go be first reconciled to your brother, right? Beloved, don't fool yourself in the thinking that you can characteristically, as a pattern, exist in perpetual resentment and hating people in the body, being in unreconciled relationships with whoever in the body, and yet you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth on Sunday mornings. Don't fool yourself. You're lying to yourself. You need to repent of that. Confess it to the Lord. Come before that brother or sister and make things right. That is worship too. Practicing forgiveness and reconciliation with one another glorifies God. That's an offering of sacrificial worship to the Lord as well. We worship when we take our sin seriously. When instead of coddling our sin, instead of diminishing it, instead of excusing it, we confess it and we seek the help of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might overcome it by His grace. That we might walk in loving and grateful obedience to Him. That we might become like Him. We worship God when we take our sin seriously. Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Over what? Over your sin? A broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. Finally, we worship God in our trials and in difficult circumstances, don't we? Do you hear that? This is for me too. All of these points of application 
I can mention them because they are issues of struggle in my own life, beloved. I need God's grace to overcome those areas of life. I need God's grace to show worship and adoration in those areas. And this is a particularly tough one for us right now. We worship and give glory to God in our trials and our difficult circumstances. This is a grave danger area for all of us. We recall how during the triumphal entry a couple of Sundays ago or so, people were were praising God, weren't they? The multitudes and the masses were praising Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of David. Only to cry later this week, as we're going to see in a few weeks or months, or maybe years, just kidding, not years, months. Only to see later this week, what are they going to be doing, many of these people? Crucify Him, crucify Him. The crowds were fickle and superficial in their so-called worship. And beloved, the reality of it is, is so many of us are just as fickle and superficial, including me. When all is well, when all is calm, when the bills are paid, when things are healthy, you're healthy, your family is healthy, other people that you love are healthy, we joyfully praise God. God is so good all the time. He's so kind. But as soon as health issues strike, as soon as we can't pay our bills, as soon as things are tight financially, as soon as comfort and security is lost that we always took for granted, what do we do? We begin to sulk, grumble, complain, attack other people, and above all, we begin to attack God, not question Him in a genuine psalmist kind of way, but really because we don't trust Him, we resent Him, we're bitter towards God, some of us. Have you abandoned me for real, Lord? This is not just a questioning you because I really want to know, Lord, and I trust you, but I want some answers. It's not that kind of pure asking. So many of us question God because we resent Him. We're bitter towards Him right now. At the core of that is an absence of worship because worshipful people trust God. Amen? And so our worship becomes circumstantially driven. Beloved, may this not be the case for us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In other words, submit to Him in all of your ways. And He will make your paths straight. We worship God when we trust our Heavenly Father, even when we don't understand everything happening around us, personally, collectively, or in our country or in our world. So let us not be fair-weather Christians. Let's praise God for His goodness and His kindness, even when circumstances are not what we expected. Amen? Let us strive by God's grace to worship God at all times from the heart, unhypocritically and genuinely, beloved. This is the lesson of our Lord's cleansing of the temple. He desires true worship and He desires unhypocritical worshipers. That's why Christ came. He came to die, to pay for sin and rescue us from God's punishment for our sin and to render sin's grip over us powerless so that we might worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be Christ-like. Help us to be zealous for Your glory. Help us, Lord, by Your grace, to be genuine, sincere, unhypocritical worshipers privately and publicly. 
personally and corporately, that we may bring glory to you and be on mission on this earth for the exaltation of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.